We are not ugly ducklings. We are swans. We are, we do swan things. We don't do duck things. We do swan things, not duck things. Well, The Ugly Duckling was the final autobiography that Hans Christian Andersen left us with. He said this was his life story. Episode nine, fairy tales are autistic. Welcome to the Autistic Culture Podcast. Each episode, we dive deep into autistic contributions to society and culture by introducing you to some of the world's most famous and successful autistics in history. Before we get started, a quick disclaimer on how we use the word autistic. The purpose of this show is not to diagnose the people or characters we discuss as autistic. While some may have announced being autistic, what we're really sharing here is our observation of what is representative of autistic culture. It can sometimes be difficult for autistic people to celebrate our natural tendencies and traits due to the perception of autism as a disorder that needs to be fixed, a long history of damaging medical interventions to get autistics to fit in with mainstream culture, and protective masking skills many of us have developed to try to stay safe. Whether you are autistic or just love someone who is, your hosts, Dr. Angela Loria, the linguistic autistic. And licensed psychological practitioner, Matt Lowry, welcome you to take this time to be fully immersed in the language, values, traditions, norms, and identity of Autistica. Well, hey, everybody, welcome back to the Autistic Culture Podcast, where today we talk fairy tales. And we're going to go deep on one Mr. Hans Christian Andersen. That is Hans Christian, but not Hans. He was very particular. He was like a like a Mary Jo. He was a two-name dude. He was like, you can call me Hans Christian. That's what you can call me. That's my name. So I did not know that. We will not be referring to him as Hans. He is Hans Christian or HCA. And um, before he found literary fairy tales, he wrote plays, travelogues, novels, poems, and uh, was a performer. A performer, you say? He was. He actually, that's where he started. I love this story about him. He was born uh, the son of a shoemaker. I guess that means he had no no shoes. That's what I hear about cobbler's kids. His mom was superstitious. She was probably an alcoholic. She loved schnapps and snow white linens and, uh, and Jesus. She had a deep religious fervor and was very concerned about trolls and ghosts. That is how Hans Christian got into that. Trolls. You, you like trolls? You like other trolls? Are trolls a big problem for the Danish people? Uh, you know, if this is fascinating. Read enough, you will find out. Ghosts and trolls. Look, Hamlet was from Hamlet's father, the ghost of Hamlet. Like that, that's all Denmark. So Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. They got they got some big lore there. Uh his dad was always broke and on some sort of uh borderline neurosis issues. And Hans Christian was like, get me out of Dodge. And he went 
to Copenhagen to be an actor. So you mentioned performance and Matt, a lot of um, autistic people find their way into the worlds of music, dance, theater. Why do you think the arts play such an important role in the careers of autistic people? I I also have met a lot of autistic uh, people who are into the arts. And honestly, I think that a part of it is that we spend so much of our life doing this whole masking thing that uh, it just becomes a way for us to express ourselves and to get into these other worlds. Because if you can take on a persona, uh, why take on a boring one? Instead of being a (laughs) banker, I'm going to be a space cowboy. Why not? Part of masking, like we, a lot of times we'll talk about masking in this like negative way. It causes burnout. It's really hard. But part of it is the research that goes into it. Right. So it's like, what do they do? Let me look. Let me write down. Let me make notes. For me, it's spreadsheets. I'll actually build spreadsheets of how do the normal people act. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Picking up on character traits, doing this intense character study. I guarantee you that the actors who do this method acting that that just dive right in and become the character 24-7, those are some autistic traits right there. Yeah. And we're going to talk hopefully in a future episode about Anthony Hopkins, who's a method actor. And also autistic, so... Yes, certified. Yeah, so we are uh, very good at this. And Hans Christian Andersen always fancied himself quite the performer, actor, singer. He's 14 years old. He shows up in Copenhagen, and he's like, who are the movers and shakers? Like, who are the people in Copenhagen who could get me cast? And he shows up at their parties and he literally just asks for jobs. He just straight out says, can you get me a job as an actor or a singer? This is very direct approach for a 14-year-old. He did not inherit his uh, father's self-esteem problems. Mm. Yeah, he was like, hey, I'm good at this. Y'all should cast me. Who do you know that will give me a job as a professional actor or singer? This directness, we're going to talk about this because this is a big part of HCA's contribution to autistic culture. A lot of us are quite direct. And what do you, where do you think that comes from? I I am one of them. (laughs) I am very direct. I I think that that comes from our communication style, our hyper-connected brain, because when we think things through, we have thought them through time and time. We have rehearsed them in our head. We have done this scripting. We have thought about the most logical. We have thought about the most succinct. We have thought about the way to present our information as eloquently and as clearly as possible. And this comes off as really bold to an holistic audience. They they say that we are very direct because we give the information, we spit it out there, we have the info dump, we, we put ourselves on the line. And this is the way we communicate with each other. It's incredibly efficient. It's essentially like making, making modem noises back and forth to each other. And this is the way, the, the highly efficient method of autistic communication that takes holistics uh, by surprise, because holistics tend to say this roundabout, hey, if you're not busy, could you possibly think about maybe one day considering the option of uh, looking into doing this thing instead of, I want to do this thing, I want to do it today. 
Right. And also, listen, he's 14. He has no money. Like his family did not like send him to Copenhagen with like buckets of cash. And he's like hyper systemizing. If I wanted to make money performing, how would I do that? Let me find people who cast and fund performances and ask them to cast me. I mean, pretty obvious to me. Seems efficient. What are you going to do? Go get headshots with no money? Yeah, yeah. He he finds the direct route. He's done his research. He goes to the Danish equivalent of Hollywood. Yeah. So he, we, by the way, we don't know that Hans Christian Andersen, born in the 1800s, was autistic. We didn't even have uh, autism diagnoses happening then. But there are lots of academics that have written about his autistic traits. Um, so in particular, Michael Fitzgerald talks about how he had narrow interests, repetitive routines, uh, challenges with social issues, and speech and language peculiarities. Interestingly, he could make them go away when he was on stage. Fascinating. And English writer Elizabeth Rigby met him in London during one of his visits after he was established as an author, but she said he was a long, thin, fleshless, boneless man. A skeleton. A skeleton, in fact. Bones neither. Interesting. (laughs) Bending and wriggling like a lizard with a lantern jaw and a cadaverous appearance. He was not super cute, but okay. This dude's Nosferatu. That's fantastic. (laughs) Uh, So uh, he had a lot of social challenges. He did have one friend who was his patron and benefactor, uh, Jonas Collins and the Collins family, uh, his, his only stated friend until death, although I will share with you another friend he made in one Charles Dickens. But uh, that friendship didn't go so well. More more on that later. Stay to the end. You don't want to miss it. But ah. for now, HCA even explains himself this way. He says, I never played with other boys. I was always alone. Uh. He was dyslexic. So it's interesting. He becomes a writer. But he was also hyperlexic. And he talks about starting to read at the age of four. He had a photographic memory and he could read, but said he didn't always know what the words meant, but he could fluently read even though he was dyslexic. So that's pretty interesting. Yeah, inference through uh, uh, other uh, cues. Uh, The words have lost my brain, ironically enough. Uh, Where are you? (laughs) Context clues. Yes. Context clues. Yes. Yes. And is that part of the gestalt? thinking it is because again we we might have phrases for things where we have these uh, the cluster of words that we put together to have a fully formed thought but it might be difficult to pick apart a piece of that cluster in order to use it in a different context mm. So when I when I I first did therapy, which was before I was diagnosed, one of the big challenges I had was my therapist would always ask me, what are you feeling? And I like literally spent years on this. I would just sit the whole therapy session. She would say, how are you? (laughs) She's like, how are you feeling? How are you? And I would be like, um, uh, Where am I? You can do do the neurotypical thing. I'm fine. How are you? I'm I'm also fine. I literally couldn't find my emotions. And 
Uh, HCA had challenges with this too. I think it's part of why he enjoyed performance so much because the script tells you what you're feeling and he could do the emotion. So he got to express a lot of emotions through performance, but what he really wanted was to be able to write his life story. So he started writing his memoir Hmm. When he was in his teens and for about 10 years, he worked on his memoir, many, many versions. But his biggest challenge, he said, was that he couldn't find his emotions, which is actually part of uh, uh, autism. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, the alexithymia is a very, very big thing because, OK, so the the interesting thing that I found. Uh, so the the most popular and in reimbursed by insurance, modality of therapy for holistics is cognitive behavior therapy. Because you pay attention to your behaviors, you pay attention to your thoughts, you pay attention to your feelings, but holistics feel their emotions physically and are able to compartmentalize and identify and process each individual emotion. Because we have this thing called alexithymia and uh, accompanying interoception uh, differences, we cognitively process emotions rather than feeling them, meaning that we might feel a sensation in our body. A lot of things that are common for autistic people is instead of saying, I feel anxious, we say, I have a migraine or I have an upset stomach or I feel Mm -hmm. tightness in my chest. And that is how we know that we are able to label that experience as feeling anxious. But that's not a part of CBT because again, uh, holistic therapists are trained to say, where are you feeling that emotion? How did you feel that? What do you do about Well, I don't know. Who knows? Uh, they, uh, we don't have a language for this. My Literally, my brain just feels blank. Yeah. It's like there's nothing there. I can't, I look for it and I can't find it. And when critics would read the stuff he wrote, not even just his memoir, but when he was writing poems and writing plays, they didn't use this term. It's my term, but they would say it's very performative. It seems Ooh. fake. That's it interesting. Feel real. That's not how people feel emotions. Ah, that's not how holistics feel emotions. Mm-hmm. And that's the interesting thing about this because, so one of the things that I use a lot with people is what we call narrative therapy. Because narrative therapy is exactly like you're describing with Hans Christian Andersen, where we are able to relate to other characters and put our emotions into what we see on the screen or on the page. And if he's able to express his emotions through these characters, he has these characters on the page that he's able to get the emotional release from. And when we do narrative therapy, we look at situations where characters are experiencing things that we are feeling, things that we are experiencing. And that allows us to have this exterior lens because we are too close to the experience We are overwhelmed by the experience and we can't dissect it. But when we see it outside of us, it allows us to go into this greater detail, greater depth of analysis. It's essentially like sharing memes in order to Mm. express our feelings. And that's a very, very popular thing for autistic people because we can say, ah, yes, that character in that book feels this way and I can relate to that character in that book. So therefore, I feel that way. And again, this goes back to our cognitive processing because we can totally cognitively process exterior emotions. We know what other people are feeling. We may not know how to respond to it appropriately, but 
We understand it. And this is the thing that holistics don't get. And that's why they claim that we have no theory of mind. They claim that we have no empathy. We are just overwhelmed a lot by emotion because they're so big for us. And they're this, so big that it just shows up as n- nothing I can put words to. Yeah. Yeah. Just this omnipresent. Blah. Blah. Yeah. Exactly. I'm like big. Blah. Yeah. And that's why having a script Having this exterior analysis is wonderful. But again, because we don't express things like holistics do, we don't have the same, uh, well, I mean, through extensive masking, through extensive work, we obviously can show holistic emotion. But this is a big reason why autistic actors might look into this because they say, ah, people have criticized me for not showing emotion. I wonder how other people do it. And they Uh get into the acting. Mm-hmm. It's all about the research because, God, we love the research. We love the research. So what HCA felt was insecure, lonely, frustrated, anger, shame. But he couldn't get those on the page until he found fairy tales Ooh. because it let him do it in this really big way, in this almost memeified way. These characters were like fake. So he wasn't having to be authentic human reaction the way someone would react he could do that and was hugely celebrated so his first fairy tale collection was published when he was 29 nice and immediate success so this is the opposite of emily dixon dickinson who is like perfecting everything and published nothing while she was alive he was wildly celebrated and many i don't think it would be possible to be listening without knowing some hans christian anderson fairy tales but matt do you have a favorite hca fairy tale I think that my favorite and the one that I tell people about the most, and I legit tell people all the time, is the ugly duckling. Because it, it so defines our experience as autistic people because we are not defective holistics. We are not defective neurotypicals. We are not ugly ducklings. We are swans. We are, we do swan things. We don't do duck things. We do swan things, not duck things. Well, The Ugly Duckling was the final autobiography that Hans Christian Andersen left us with. He said this was his life story. And as you mentioned, character grows up thinking he's an ugly duck. And his mom talks about him behind his back. This is what his mom said. Matt, read this for us. He isn't so handsome, but he's as good as he can be, and he swims just as well as the rest, or I should say, even a little better than they do. I hope his looks will improve with age, and after a while, he won't seem so big. He took too long in the egg, and that's why his figure isn't at all as it should be. She was literally talking to another duck in the pond. She's like, yeah, the the duck comes over and he's like, you have such beautiful babies, except that one. She's like, yeah, I know he's kind of fucked up. Uh, Ouch. I I know a lot of uh, uh, holistic parents who use similar language about their autistic children. And it's heartbreaking every single time. So I remember taking a, it was like a 17 magazine quiz with my mom. And it was like, do you and your mom get along? You take the quiz, your mom takes the quiz, and we'll tell you what kind of mother-daughter pair you are. And my mom took this quiz, I took the quiz, but it was my magazine. 
so I could see her answers because later I like read what she actually wrote for the questions. And one of the questions was, when you see other kids playing, other girls playing, do you wish they were your daughter? And my mom said yes. Oh, my God. Holy hell. Ah. I like, I get a photographic memory, so tortured. I can still see the bubble colored in. It like wasn't, there was no hesitation. It was wildly colored. And she would talk about me. I would hear her talk about me like, hopefully she'll straighten out when she gets older. Or did I do something wrong? Maybe she was Uh, too long in the egg. I wish she was like the other ducks. There was always, there was a neighborhood librarian. And she's like, oh, I wish she was like her. And then, Ironically, the librarian is probably one of us too. But yeah, that's probably know. true. <laughs> Do love me a librarian. So echopraxia. Ah. Yeah, there we go. Ah. <laughs> Cheers. <laughs> yeah. So we were. If you're not watching the video, we were both drinking at the same time. Um, okay. So I get my diagnosis, and I'm like, oh, I totally get it. I'm not a duck. I'm a swan. And this happens for the ugly duckling as well. This is a little bit of a longer excerpt, but I think it's worth uh, I think it's worth reading because this really is what an autism diagnosis feels like. And if you haven't and and self diagnosis, by the way, I will say I think is is fine too. It will feel like this when you get a good diagnosis. And I totally agree. As a person who does this for a living. Uh, I find that autistic people who are undiagnosed and do the research as we do and come to the conclusion, yes, I'm autistic, that is perfectly valid. So yeah, Uh, so here's the quote. From the thicket before him came three lovely white swans. They ruffled their feathers and swam lightly in the stream. The duckling recognized these noble creatures and a strange feeling of sadness came upon him. He bowed his head down over the water. But what did he see there, mirrored in the clear stream? He beheld his own image, and it was no longer the reflection of a clumsy, dirty gray bird, ugly and offensive. He himself was a swan. Being born in a duckyard does not matter, if only you're hatched from a swan's egg. He felt quite glad that he had come through so much trouble and misfortune. For now, he had a fuller understanding of his own good fortune and of beauty when he met with it. The great swan swam all around him and stroked him with their bills. Several little children came into the garden to throw grain and bits of bread upon the water. The smallest child cried, here's a new one. And the others rejoiced. Yes, a new one has come. They clapped their hands, danced around and ran to bring their father and mother. And they threw bread and cake upon the water while they all agreed. The new one is the most handsome of all. He's so young and so good looking. The old swans bowed in his honor. He found Aww. his clan. He found his group. He found his, well, not people, but his, his swans. Du- his swans. He found his swans. Being born in a duckyard does not matter if only you are hatched from a swan's egg. This is what I want autistic people to know. If you keep trying to compare yourself to the other ducks and you're a swan, you are going to be very disappointed. Yeah, totally. H- HCA called the tale a reflection of my own life. Now, remember, he actually got that acclaim 
as he lived. People did stand around and say he's so good looking. People did bow in his honor. Not every autistic person has that experience. And I think that really shaped him, not just because he was able to reflect on the achievements of his advice, but he was also able to remember how he worked so hard to overcome the disadvantages that he faced, the clouds of depression. That's what made him so happy. So when he says in that quote, he felt quite glad that he had come through so much trouble and misfortune for now he had a fuller understanding of his own good fortune when he met with it. That's awesome. That's that's a journey that continues. Like, I don't think it has fixed points. I think uh, when you are diagnosed, that's a moment. And then that doesn't mean it fixes everything. It's a journey. When people get their strengths-based autism diagnosis from you, Matt, I sort of imagine you throwing bread and cake and squealing. This this new one is the best of all. Is that what it's like for people when they get that, oh, that document from you? It's so, uh, honestly, people have asked if I can make up a document that says essentially, congratulations, you're autistic, so they can have a, uh, a certificate of autisticness to show to people because it's, it is a coming home. It is a, a reckoning that says that you are not defective, that you are a beautiful autistic swan. And this is a neat thing because when you finally find your people, a whole bunch of people who love research, a whole bunch of people who love reading and uh, hyper fixations. And like we talked about before, the, the euphoria that comes with special interests, the euphoria that comes with research and finding new things to dive into, and the euphoria that comes with info dumping back and forth with other autistic people. If you are an autistic person who has never had the joy of mutually info dumping with other autistic people, you have not you, you don't, yeah, you have not found have not that swung. joy. You can't possibly imagine how great it is. But you can, because you can meet other autistic people and find other swans. So do you think this is why, like, one of the most common reactions I get when I tell people I'm autistic is you don't look autistic, ah. which I think is fascinating. It is very painful to me. Like, it's, yeah. like, physically painful to hear that. And I imagine if you looked at a swan and said, you don't look like a swan, you look like a duck. It feels a little like gaslighty. I'm yes. like, what the fuck are you talking about? Do you know anything about autism? I 100% look autistic. What does that mean? Yeah. And, and I think that that comes from, uh, again, the reason that ABA is a $1.8 billion, yeah, billion dollar a year industry is because it has to manufacture a problem in order to provide a, quote, cure for it. And in doing so, it dehumanizes us. And when people mm. hear about that, they automatically assume other things that were some sort of barely sentient homunculus that mm -hmm. uh, shambles around and uh, maybe three eyes, uh, I don't know, an arm <laughs> a foot longer than the other. Yeah. Who, who knows? Because again, we, we are human. We, we look just like anybody else. And this is a thing that throws people because they can't see our brains. They right. Can't, My neurons yeah. are not on display. That's why I want the certificate from you. Diagnosed. Exactly. Exactly. 
We love sharing stories of autistic culture. And if you are seeing yourself in any of these stories and you're wondering if maybe you're one of us or maybe you're already diagnosed or self-diagnosed and you want to know if Matt can help you live your life better and be more authentically autistic, check out his website at mattlowerylpp.com. That's Matt, M-A-T-T, Lowry, L-O-W-R-Y. And then that L-P-P, it stands for Licensed Psychological Practitioner. So head on over to mattlowerylpp.com and learn more about working with my buddy, Matt. So uh, I always felt different. I think that's a very common thing. And my I must have made my grandmother read me the golden book of the princess in the pea that's about a, a thousand one. times. Yep. And like the main character, I was very sensitive to anything that was out of place. Ah. And that was made to mean that I was difficult or histrionic or one of the things that they always said about me was she's the do you know the story of the little boy who called uh little boy who called wolf cried wolf um so I was always compared to the little boy who cried wolf and in the princess and the pea HCA turns this on its head and this was why I wanted to hear it over and over and over again because this specialness my sensitivity was not only acknowledged in this story, but it was made to be something special. Here's a little bit from The Princess and the Pea. They could see she was a real princess and no question about it. Now that she had felt one pea all the way through 20 mattresses and 20 more feather beds, nobody but a princess could be so delicate. Bam. Thank you, HCA. Affirmed. And that's the thing because because of our hyperconnected brain, we don't have a sensory filter. It turns out, so they, they've actually done studies. Uh, when they found that our brains were hyperconnected, they did these studies, they did these brain scans, and it turns out that neurotypical people tune out 98% of all sensory data. 98%. And mm-hmm. we don't. We are hypersensitive to the world around us. We hear lights buzzing. We can hear electricity in the refrigerator. We can hear and sense our socks are itchy. That's the reason I'm in bare feet right now. Mm, Same. The, The world is overwhelming for us. It's chaotic. And this is exemplified in The Princess and the Pea because she feels it, whereas other people wouldn't. And that's the reason she's royalty. Mm. And like, if you're being told over and over again, Angela, you're being so dramatic. Ah. Why are you so dramatic? But it really was, I wasn't being dramatic. It was different for me. Like their interpretation wasn't wrong in that the light buzzing in our kitchen, which I can still hear, (laughs) fluorescent tube, fluorescent tube lights, which I was always turning off. Like they weren't hearing it. So it did feel to them like I was being so dramatic. Yeah. And and this is a big thing about uh, uh, allistic therapy because allistics are very big on what we call exposure therapy because allistics have this thing called uh, desensitization and habituation. We don't do that. Uh, Allistics become less sensitive to stimuli over time because that's the way they're wired. We don't do that. It just causes trauma for us. Mm. 
It causes and literally when you say they become less sensitive, it's because neurons are being pruned, right? Yeah, exactly. It's like zap, zap, zap. Yeah, it, it weeds it out so that they don't feel as sensitive to this thing. But our brains can't do that. That's not how our brains work. So we just learn that we must suffer. And that causes a lot of PTSD and a lot of depression because why suffer? Why uh, th this is the thing. This is why autistic people need accommodations and understanding instead of trying to assimilate into a world that is not made for us. Yes, indeed. All right. Well, we talked earlier about autistic directness, which is one of my favorite aspects of the culture. Oh, yes. And I think the best HCH, HCA story on this one is The Emperor's New Clothes. Uh, this is a classic autistic tale. Oh, yes. Um, we will just say things that other people will not say. So in The Emperor's New Clothes, you'll remember the emperor goes off into this procession with his new clothes and everyone's talking about how fine are the emperor's new clothes? Don't they fit him to per perfection? I love the long train. And literally nobody is saying they can't see anything except for a little child who says, I'm going to drop this into the chat. But he hasn't got anything on, a little child said. Did you ever hear such innocent prattles, said its father. And one person whispered to another what the child had said. He hasn't anything on. A child says he hasn't anything on. But he hasn't got anything on. The whole town cried out at last. The emperor shivered, for he suspected that they were right. But he thought, this procession has got to go on. So he walked more proudly than ever, as his nobleman held high the train that wasn't there at all. Please explain. That's the thing, because <laughs> th this whole story is... The, the, these clothes are only the clothes that uh, these clothes can only be seen by the smartest and the greatest people. And he said, oh, well, I'm smart and great, so I can definitely see these clothes. Can you see the clothes? Well, yes, I could also see these clothes. Can you? Yes, I can. And this kid comes out of nowhere and says, you're naked. Why are you naked, man? Cut it out. Stop being so naked. And he's like, oh. Oh, I am naked. Oh, well, I'm going to keep on being naked. And, and I guess I'll thing. just pretend I'm not. Yeah. So yeah. I, I feel like we need to diverge here for a minute and talk about, I don't know, let's talk about seclusion rooms. Oh, I boy. think if you tell anyone, which I'm going to have you tell us what seclusion rooms are in a minute, but if you tell anyone about seclusion rooms, they'll be like, oh, my God, this is terrible. I'm I'm naked. This, we should stop this immediately. But we have not stopped seclusion rooms. They just the procession has to go on. Yeah. Or hold my train. So let's talk about seclusion rooms a little and then people can agree with me. <laughs> One of the things that I am passionate about is ending seclusion and restraint in schools, because this is a thing that happens to neurodivergent children who are labeled as bad or disruptive. And they are essentially wrestled to the ground by very large staff and thrown in locked in a padded room on the school campus where they are isolated from other children because they are different. And again, when you say, hey, this is bad, allistics might say, well, yes, but they're problem children and this is okay. No, it's not okay. 
It's zero percent okay. No. That is imprisoning a child. Yeah. It's zero percent okay. And it disproportionately Ever. targets neuro uh, neurodivergent children. It disproportionately targets children of color. It disproportionately targets anyone that they decide is a problem who is not just perfectly fitting in with the rest. Any kid who might say, "Hey, teacher, that thing that you said that's not right. Oh, you're being a problem. Get into the seclusion room." That causes issues. It's all about compliance, and ABA is big on compliance. But this leads to fascism. It's a support yeah. of a fascist state where you where you seclude and eliminate the dissenters and people like this kid and the emperor. If the emperor said, "Silence that child and look at my clothes," and everyone agree how great my clothes are. That's insane. Literally, that little kid was sent to a seclusion room and the parade went on and yeah. everyone's like, dude looks good to me. I don't know. Yeah, It is destructive for autistic people, which, of course, is our concern. But it uh, obviously I'm being biased here as an autistic person, but it does not make the world a better place. No. Like, I don't understand what we're doing. There are very obvious solutions like go get your clothes on. And uh, they don't happen even when we say them louder yeah. somehow. It's horrifying. Uh, okay, well, one of Hans Christian Andersen's other stories, a less well-known one, not yet a Disney movie, but stay tuned, is The Nightingale. And this is uh, where he talks about collecting. Ah, yes. Matt, you are a collector. I'm a collector. And uh, this is those are your collections. These are my collections. Well, in the Nightingale, the emperor had a collection of birds. He had an aviary. He had these birds. And the very annoying thing is the birds would not sing on command. So he had this favorite bird. He loved it when it sang. He couldn't get this bird to sing. And so he got a gift of a mechanical bird that worked on command. And this is a little bit about the mechanical bird. The emperor is mesmerized by a glittery mechanical nightingale made of jewel-encrusted gold that can sign as well as the real bird. He makes it sing 32 times and doesn't grow tired of it. He perseverates on the bird to the exclusion of everything around him, including the authentic bird that really does care for him. So <clears throat> making it sing 32 times is like me having my grandmother read me the uh, Princess and the Pea a thousand times. What's the repetition thing all about? We are comforted by routine. We are comforted by expectancy. We are comforted by this test, retest reliability because I, I explain to parents of autistic children that Every autistic person is a scientist, that we love testing and retesting our hypotheses to make sure that the world works in a nice and orderly fashion to combat the inherent chaos that comes from being overstimulated. And when you're able to make the world work like clockwork and make sure that everything goes as it should and that it is predictable, the world is uh, easier for us to handle. So I want to talk about sensory overwhelm and then sensory oh, yes. seeking because the emperor loves this is super glittery it's the singing is actually loud he's waking up everyone in the kingdom with this bird singing they're like over it and so if he's so sensitive if we're so sensitive as autistic people 
What is the other side with the sensory seeking piece? I actually explained this to somebody the other day. Uh, so due to the hyperconnected brain, on the one hand, we do experience the world very chaotically, right? Uh, we are overloaded by sensory information, and that's why we need this order. But once we get this order, the brain still is hyperconnected, and we do this thing that I call data seeking. We need novelty, we need stimulation in a way that works for us. So we, within this stable world, we need newness, we need novelty. Some people love eating new foods. Some people, like me, enjoy collecting mythical objects from all around the fictional <laughs> worlds, including this Bubo from Clash of the Titans, which is a nice mechanical <laughs> owl. And uh, we, we need novelty. We need exploration. We need research. We need new books, new ideas. This is part of who we are. And some people might not understand that our brains require this to be happy, even though other things might freak us out. And they, they say, how can you be both sensory seeking yeah. and sensory avoidant? But that's the thing. It's a different parts of the brain working at the same time, doing the same thing in different ways. And we just, it, this is the thing about uh, being human. We are multifaceted and we are complex. Uh, yeah, we, are, so we are not easily explained. I, I hate, random loud noise like it'll throw me off for hours but if I know to expect noise it doesn't always upset me and I've built a lot of supports in my life and supportive people in my life we were I was just talking with my sister about going to a basketball game and we're gonna go to this basketball game and she's like unless you don't want to come I know it's really loud it's gonna be really loud and I'm like, yeah, but that's not the kind of loud that's going to bother me. Like if you drop a knife in the kitchen on the kitchen floor, that's it. I'm done for two hours. But the loud of people cheering at a basketball game, I'm totally fine with. That doesn't bother me at all. And she's like, that doesn't make sense. It's much louder. Well, it's the analogy of taking a shower versus someone randomly spraying you with a hose. It's still the same water droplets. It's still being, you know, affected by the water. But one is where you choose it and you plan it and you, it's your call. Whereas another surprises you out of nowhere. And it's so disturbing that you, you know, might throw a rock at them. It's yes, correct. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because it, this is just how our brains work. So researchers have found that there are differences in the rods and cones of autistic people. 85% have been shown to see colors with greater intensity, including a red that appears nearly fluorescent, vibrating with intensity. Of course, I want to look at that. Like, uh, that yes. sounds fantastic. Give me the sparkly stuff. Shiny. Like, I want to see all the sparkly stuff as long as it's where it's supposed to be. Yeah. Yeah. Because you don't want to be surprised in the middle of the night by the color floor. No one no. wants that. But if I know I get to see it, give me more. Exactly. <laughs> Uh, so one of my favorite HCA collectors is in the, I was going to say the movie, but in the story, The Little Mermaid. Look at this stuff. Isn't it neat? Wouldn't you think my collection's complete? Wouldn't you think I'm the girl, the girl who has everything? Uh, so many that's dingle hoppers. Mermaid. So many dingle hoppers. You can brush your hair with the forks. I mean, the dingle hoppers. Uh, so... 
our girl Ariel in The Little Mermaid, she thinks she is on the wrong planet. Uh, our friend Alex Plank from Wrong Planet gave us that term. So um, she's in this world of sea creatures, but she doesn't feel like them. She wants to be where the people are. And this is an existential loneliness yes. that she feels being in this world of sea creatures, but she just wants feet. And that depression, I think, is it, it's at an existential level. It's not just like a, a momentary sadness. Feeling like an outsider at this deep level can be very painful. Uh, here is a little excerpt from The Little Mermaid. In a little while, one of the young girls came upon him. She seemed frightened, but only for a minute. Then she called more people. The mermaid watched the prince regain consciousness and smile at everyone around him. But he did not smile at her, for he did not even know that she had saved him. She felt very unhappy. And when they led him away to the big building, she dived sadly down into the water and returned to her father's palace. She had always been quiet and wistful, and now she became much more so. I think that's such a big thing about not being seen. Like, I'm doing so much. Dude, I saved this guy's life. How can he not see me? How can I not be recognized? And I feel like in workplaces, in families, in friendships, autistic people are like overly productive. They're like, let me do something amazing and then maybe you'll see me for who I am. Exactly. But it's hard to be seen or recognized. It's like you can be brushed over this, this uh, is actually, in a different way. Yeah, this is actually a thing called uh, that leads to autistic burnout because people can become addicted to this performance, uh, to this overproductivity, to thinking that maybe if I try just a little harder, I'll finally get that recognition. Maybe if I work 70 or 80 hours a week, somebody will finally acknowledge my worth. Somebody will finally say that I'm good, that I rescued the prince, that I did all these things. And then you're so exhausted, you just fall apart. People yep. sacrifice so much of themselves in order to get that acknowledgement. Nice segue, because here is what Ariel sacrificed in order for her to finally be seen. She's like, maybe if I grow legs, then I'll be seen. So she makes a bargain with a sea witch and she purchases legs with her voice. Uh, and I think metaphorically, a lot of autistic people do this with masking. The yes. trade-off costs her. And I think this echoes the way we as autistic people can sacrifice our natural selves to get ex like being accepted and welcomed by the neuromajority. And then it doesn't even work that great because now we've lost our voice, literally, yes. who we are, auth authenticity, the thing we have to offer, the thing that is most beautiful about us when we give that up to fit in. Yeah. Now, what are we actually doing? Exactly. Yeah, I, I masked for years in community mental health because a supervisor once said that I should never, ever, ever tell people that I'm autistic because they would think less of me. And even working with autistic clients, even working, doing autism evaluations, I never, ever again revealed to other staff members that I was autistic because I, I didn't want that discrimination. I lost my voice. And I did the autistic community a great disservice during that time in my life out of self-preservation. And 
it's a period of my life I really regret. I feel that so deeply. And I think there that's not to say there are not times and places for masking. But I think one of the questions that The Little Mermaid calls us to ask ourselves is like, what will I give up? What, how much can I give up? If you give up like 15 minutes or even a half a day of napping on the couch in order to go socialize at a party for somebody who you really like, okay, maybe we can make that trade off. But when you give up the truth of who you are for anyone, even someone who you really love, like Prince Eric, by the way, Prince Eric, not that impressive of a dude. Just going to say, let's not give up your life for Prince Eric. But anyway, I got to say, I would not go for someone who eats my friends. You know, right. Just saying. It's one of the issues. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Fish eater. Oh, my goodness. When autistic people find a special interest, they go deep and have a lot of knowledge, even if they don't have that formal education background to go with it. If you want to capture your spin in a book, check out Angela's work at differencepress.com. Differencepress.com. And find out more about becoming an author and establishing your credibility with a book. Well, I promised this at the beginning, and this is, hopefully you've hung in there for this. I'm going to move outside of HCA's literary contributions to autistic culture and tell you my absolute batshit crazy bananas story of Hans Christian Andersen and Charles Dickens. So, Matt, you talk about how we develop relationships with the people we are fans of. And that happened for Hans Christian Andersen. So he was a total fanboy for Charles Dickens, read everything he wrote, desperately wanted to meet him, to know him. We get excited about some of the people we might get to meet as guests on this podcast. He wanted Charles Dickens on his podcast like nothing else. He was, uh, he friended him on Instagram. He would straight up like every Insta post and every once in a while he'd even dip into his DMs. This was his favorite obsession. He collected his serial novels. He couldn't wait till the next one came out, standing in line to get the next installment of one of Charles Dickens' major stories. And we talked earlier about how directness is a part of autistic culture and how it makes sense to us. And so I personally think this story is the perfect payback for the indirectness of the neuromajority, which Charles Dickens was a part of. You are going to love this. So Charles Dickens was English. We've talked about this. HCA was from Denmark. And at this point, HCA is super successful. And Charles Dickens is very proper. So when HCA is DMing him, it might not have been DMs. He was sending him letters. Uh, but, But Charles Dickens would write back. They actually met in 1847. Hans Christian Andersen got sent on a tour of England when his first translation of fairy tales came out. It was wildly popular. Dickens was at the party and he's like, oh, I get to tell you in person. Let's take pictures together. I'm so excited to meet you. And thus began a nine year friendship. 
Anderson is writing to Charles Dickens all the time. He does deep analysis of all of his stories and gives his feedback to Charles Dickens. And in in Anderson's mind and in, in HCH's mind, they're friends. They write all the time. Charles Dickens writes back. They've met. He's thinking if we lived closer, we'd probably hang out every weekend. And uh, Dickens confirms this. He says we're friends. Now, this is the first time HCA has made a friend. He had this one childhood friend, Jonas Collins. His uh, Collins's family kept him alive and was a patron. But he made a friend, and not only a friend, the world's coolest dude. Good stuff, right? So Absolutely. In one of his letters, Charles Dickens says, hey, man, if you're ever in the neighborhood, stop by. Now, Matt, I would like you to do an interpretation of what does, if you are ever in the neighborhood, stop by mean in autistic culture? In autistic culture, that's a direct invitation to stop by because we take that literally because you said the phrase, if you're in the neighborhood, if you happen to be in the neighborhood, stop by, stop by. What the fuck else could that mean? Yeah, yeah, that's, I, I don't understand the other interpretation of that because this is the thing that kills me. I, I have learned over time that the holistic meaning of this. So now whenever an holistic says, yeah, we should get together sometime, I immediately say, how about Tuesday at 3 p.m.? Just to call <laughs> them out on the bullshit. And they say, well, that's a bad time. How about 4 p.m.? How about Wednesday? Just because I want to make them confront the bullshit. Why? So apparently the um, holistic translation is like, fuck off, leave me alone, but please conspire with me to tell everyone else we're friends. Yes. Yes. It's very confusing to me. I've not mastered this one. And as you will tell this visit, I can like spoiler alert you on this. This visit does not go well. I blame Charles Dickens 100 percent. Why would you say if you're in the neighborhood, stop by? That makes no sense to me. So obviously, Hans Christian Andersen calls his publisher. He's like, hey, can we get me a tour in England? Because if I have a tour in England, then I will be in the neighborhood And therefore, I will get to hang out with my best friend who has been writing me letters for nine years who I don't get to see. Nine years. I mean, stop writing back. Here is what I recommend. If you don't want to be friends with me, the words you want to say are, I don't want to be friends with you. Yes. Don't write me back and say, come visit. If you don't mean that, it is not fair. Uh... So anyway, so he gets his publisher to pay for this trip. He tells Charles Dickens, great news, going to be in the neighborhood, going to be there for two weeks. Can I stay at your house? Dickens says, absolutely. I'll get the rooms ready. No worries. Now, this is what he didn't say. Charles Dickens had been married to his amazing wife. I will tell you about Catherine soon. Uh, They'd been married for 22 years. They had 10 kids together. The oldest was 17, um, just about to have her 18th birthday. Charles Dickens is 45. He just bought a bright red Corvette (laughs) and is dating a girl his daughter's age, same age as Katie. Her name is Nellie. She's an actress. He sneaks out to see Nellie. He actually buys Nellie an apartment. And so now (sighs) he's got a house guest 
And it's hard to keep sneaking around. So can you imagine how annoyed you would be at your house guest, who, by the way, you lied to because you don't like anyway. And now you got to be home to deal with this house guest. But really, you want to be screwing some chick who's your 18-year-old daughter's age. So... Dickens has a bee in his bonnet about this whole trip, and he starts talking shit about HCA all around English society. He is like, this, this, instead of just saying, like, dude, this isn't working, he tells this story. I don't know if this story is true. I know Charles Dickens tells this story. I suspect there's a shred of truth to it. But he basically says, can you believe Hans Christian Andersen? Like, this guy is so weird. He shows up and he insists that my son shave him every morning because it's a Danish tradition to have the oldest son in the household shave a house guest. That's bizarre. It's a bizarre tradition. I don't know if it's true or not. I don't know what more there is to the story, but it is friggin' sl- slanderous because everyone's now Hans Christian Andersen is super weird. And like, listen, Chuck, just say no. You yes. are the master of your destiny here. You can just say, hey, neat Danish tradition. We're not going to do that here. But instead, he's like, sure, my son will shave you. And then. Which is I, even weirder. Oh, my God. Right. So then Hans Christian Andersen has this autistic meltdown. He like throws himself on the lawn. He's crying hysterically because he gets a bad review. Rejection, sensitivity, dysphoria. Oh, yeah. And what does Charles Dickens do? Tells everyone. Ah. Then they're like one night. Remember, in Hans Christian Andersen's head, he's hanging out with his best friend. He's so excited. They're finally together. They're at some party. And Charles Dickens, like, extends his arm out to escort escort a lady into the dining room. And Anderson loops his arm through like, hey, bud, which I think is adorable and remarkably non-heteronormative for the 1850s. Right. Like you go. And literally Dickens is like making fun of him for being gay, for like touching his elbow. Oh, my God. So anyway, everybody tells this story as if Hans Christian Andersen is so terrible and Charles Dickens was so put upon. And they leave out the fact that he is trying to cover up this affair by putting all the focus on the autistic bloke. And eventually Hans Christian Andersen, heartbroken, oh, I don't have the one fucking friend I thought I made. He eventually leaves. He stays for five weeks because he's trying to like fix shit. He's trying to figure out what what went wrong here. And then he finds out Charles Dickens is talking about him behind his back. <sighs> he goes back to Denmark and Charles Dickens writes on the guest room mirror, Hans Anderson, by the way, calling him Hans. He's Hans Christian. But anyway, Hans Anderson slept in this room for five weeks, which seemed to this family ages. Rude. Uh, Rude. Rude. You can't spell Charles Dickens without a dick. That's exactly And that is the name of the episode. Exactly. So if you would like to see this story through a neurotypical lens, Bleak House Guest is on Showtime and it tells you the exact opposite of the story I just told. And it will tell you how weird and strange and gangly and awkward and, I don't know, homoerotic Hans Christian Andersen is. Enjoy. Um, But I am just saying sometimes I wish the whole world spoke directly like we do. Um, I know there are like the Germans, the Dutch, the Israelis. They're much more 
direct. There are ethnic cultures that are more direct. And as a neuro culture of autistics, I think Charles Dickens got what he deserved. Yes. Yeah. So there. Yeah. Oh, Catherine, by the way, total rock star, his wife. She was an author in her own right. And after he left her for this 18-year-old, the mother of his 10 children, he lied and said that he ghost wrote her cookbook. He couldn't even cook. He called her an alcoholic, a drunk, and hysterical. Her book, though, is called What Shall We Have for Dinner? And I think she should get a Netflix special for What Shall We Have for Dinner? For feeding 10 kids and some asshole. Yeah, seriously, that's insane. Oh, he sucks. Right? I changed my whole tune on Charles Dickens, man. Yeah. So um, if you can make an autistic person a scapegoat, though, it, it is like a nice distraction. It's not like we've never been the scapegoat before. Yeah. And that's the thing, because it's so easy to blame, quote, the weird one for everything that goes wrong. So in couples counseling, this is called Cassandra's syndrome, because they inevitably blame the autistic partner for everything that goes wrong, for not getting social cues, for not being language thing, words, <laughs> Words, language. Yeah. Uh, yeah for, but for like not for be, saying, yeah. hey, could you shave me? Could your oldest son shave me? Wouldn't that be fun? Yeah. Yeah. Like, I don't know. That's not your thing. I mean, it's weird. I'm not saying it's not weird, but just say, dude, that's weird. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the thing. It's just it, it puts all of the problems on us instead of this cross neurotype communication mismatch. Right. That double empathy problem. More exactly. on that to come. So. Totally. This was my uh, romp through autistic culture terrain with our Danish friend Hans Christian Andersen. I I told you it would be bananas. What'd you think? <laughs> definitely, definitely. I mean, he definitely sounds like he's one of our people, and that uh, Charles Dickens totally exploited him. That sucks. Yeah, and pick one of the stories, the Hans Christian Andersen stories we talked about today. I didn't talk about them at all. Obviously, Frozen is based on the Snow Queen, which is another autistic story. Anna and Elsa. Elsa is the autistic Snow Queen, and Anna is her neurotypical sister. Um, So there's so much more to explore. But if you're feeling lonely and you feel like you don't fit in, pick up the Ugly Duckling. That is our collective autobiography. So... Matt, leave me with a morsel. What is something you loved about being an ugly duckling or a beautiful swan in Autistica this week? I had the opportunity to speak to a class at a local college about autistic culture and to tell people about uh, why we are different, how we are different, and how to better support us and how they can change their practice in order to better help autistic children. And uh, afterwards... Uh, People came up and said, oh, my, this is great. And I think that uh, I may have converted someone who uh, was previously into doing ABA and said, oh, I didn't realize that this was bad. I think I'm going to change paths. So I, I think I may have saved some at least one person from the ABA machine and therefore saved some kids. So awesome. 
Yeah. You can help us save some people from the ABA machine too. Please rate, review, like, share, tell someone you love about this podcast. It literally can save someone's life. So thank you, Matt, for joining me for a romp through Hans Christian Andersen's fairy tales. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to the Autistic Culture Podcast. You can find out more about writing your book with Angela at www.differencepress.com. That's www.difference, D-I-F-F-E-R-E-N-C-E, press, P-R-E-S-S, dot com. Or getting a psychological evaluation or consult with Matt at www.mattlowerylpp.com. That's www.matt, M-A-T-T, Lowry, L-O-W-R-Y, L-P-P, Licensed Psychological Practitioner.com. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. And remember, great minds think different.